Those who know me and my story know that my wife is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And guys, I'm so excited. Tonight she's going to share that story in a coffee shop in Denver. She's going to share the story of her healing from abuse, our love story, and of her conversion, all of which are intertwined. You see, so often we think that our wounds in life are totally separate from all the good things in our lives, like our love stories and our relationship with God. Actually, our wounds are so often precisely the openings, the cracks in our hearts that God ends up using for His greater glory for us to let His grace and His presence and love seep in. So she's going to give you that whole beautiful redemptive story. Uh, she's not a professional speaker. She might read notes a lot, but I'm so dang proud of her. And you got to listen to every single word because it's so powerful. Before I take you in there, I just want to thank you, our missionaries of joy, who jump in, don't sit in the sidelines, but actually fund this thing and make the whole thing happen with their monthly gift. And we pour it back into you. Go to reallifecatholic.com, become a missionary of joy. Now, join me in the coffee shop. Okay, I feel like I want to pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Jesus, I'm just filled with gratitude for my life, for this story, this path that you've been with me, that I've walked. And I just pray that you anoint this night and open the minds and hearts of people who need to hear this, because it's your story, Lord. It's a story of redemption and a story of hope. And I love you, Lord, and I'm just so grateful. Amen. This is my journey of healing from sexual abuse and my journey of faith from atheism. And these journeys are uh, connected. They're dovetailing throughout my life. So it was 1997. I had had my conversion four years earlier, and now I was marrying the man who surpassed my dreams he loved Jesus fervently and adored me, and he was a virgin. We longed for each other physically, which is awesome, but we remained chaste during dating and engagement. We had run the race, and now it was the joy of the finish line, our wedding night, which was supposed to be incredible. It was supposed to be bliss for two people, two Catholic people who did everything right. This night, for me, turned into misery, and for Chris, probably, too. The moment of our coming together felt terrible. It felt wrong, and I just started crying. I didn't know why. I just knew this wasn't supposed to be this way. Fast forward, nine years later, we had four kids, as good Catholic NFP-practicing, faithful, fruitful Catholics do. We make babies, lots of them. So on the outside, though, we were this beautiful, picture-perfect couple. Well, I thought we were, because that was important to me to keep that appearance up. But our intimate life was in shambles. I dreaded sex. I tried to avoid it if I could, with the usual excuse of exhaustion, which, for a mom of small children, was an excuse that usually worked. But I mostly just endured sex. There was no pleasure only frigidity and waiting for it to be over on my part. 
Chris and I fought so much regarding our sex. He could not understand what had happened to this high libido woman who couldn't keep her hands off of him all during our dating and engagement. He had done everything right. What had he done? And what was he doing wrong now? And I, for my part, hated myself. I hated that I could not show up for my husband, that I was always at fault and I didn't know why. Chris certainly didn't deserve this. And was this what Christian marriage is supposed to look like? I felt deceived. And out of bed, too, in day-to-day -day life, I was what I called a frenzied lunatic. I had no peace. I had to be in control of everything. I was a high achiever. My kids were well-educated. They looked beautiful. My house was mostly clean. But if I had company, down to the baseboards clean. But if something happened that was not in the schedule or pre-approved by me for the day, I felt totally out of control and frantic. I regularly referred to myself as crazy and I laughed it off. I was telling my group this past, this past weekend that I even had a t-shirt that said I have a black belt in crazy. Because I thought, well, I'm gonna celebrate this craziness. What else was I gonna do? It was me. It was the person I had become. This was the married with children, freaky me that I had come to accept. Until one day it reached a head. And we had planned a simple outing in the mountains, but we had to have the kids back for a doctor appointment in the late afternoon. Well, we didn't make it back. And I was humiliated and I had to cancel that appointment. Not a big deal for most people, I think. Um, these things happen. I'm doing the best I can, yada, yada. But it was for me. I went into my bedroom and I just spiraled in the darkness sitting on my bed. Um, I started ideating about the shotgun in the closet and I just wanted it all to end. And I will never forget this moment because I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand why I felt so crazy and hopeless over such a little occurrence. But the feelings were real. I didn't want to live anymore. Chris saved me that day and many days before and since, similar to that, talking to and leading me out of that darkness that I would retreat into when life went just a little bit off and I would feel like I was losing my mind. Shortly after this was Christmas time and we were in Barnes and Noble cashing in our annual mother-in-law gift cards. And Chris is out looking for his book and he comes over to me and drops this huge book on the table in front of me and said, this is what I want with my gift card. I want you to read it. And I said, wait, this is supposed to be a gift for you. And he said, trust me, it is. And I looked at it and it was called The Courage to Heal for Women Survivors of Childhood Sexual Abuse. And now to this day, I truly do not understand how he knew I was a survivor and I didn't. Guardian angel, obviously, Grace, but he was right. See, 20 years before, my brother's friend sexually abused me. I was 11. I never know what's gonna choke me up, but I will probably be choked up many times tonight. And for some reason, one of the first moment is now. I think I feel sad for myself. I feel sad for that little girl. But the problem was I didn't know it was abuse. And there are a couple of reasons for that. 
I didn't kick and scream and fight to stop him. Instead, I let it happen. Horrified, but silent. I was muted that day. That's what abuse does. And I had a crush on him. So didn't that mean I was complicit? That I played some part, had some responsibility? As I was writing this talk, this was a moment that I started crying. Yeah, I felt sad for that little girl who lost her innocence that day and became powerless and silent and alone. Um, but one good thing is I've become a very deep empath and I regularly cry and feel very deeply. Um, the other, number two, the second reason I didn't think it was abuse was that if anything, I could tell that the older teens close to me were borderline proud of me that I had entered the ranks of sexually active teens, but their silence in reference to it being abuse told me that it was not abuse. It defined it for me. I was an 11-year-old kid. It was something I engaged in and therefore I chose it. So I never once categorized it as rape, but I did forever change that day. I became an adult that day exclusively responsible for my own well-being and safety. My parents I no longer saw as my moral formators or sources of respite or consolation or counsel. I was in charge because I was alone. And because of that, I had to be impenetrable. I started wearing black around my eyes, immodest clothing, started smoking cigarettes first, then quickly followed by pot and alcohol. I would hop on Santa Monica City buses and go around town to people's homes who I had just met to get high, and of course by bus because I was 12. I developed an exterior wall around me that was a mile thick. I had to because I had to be tough so that I wouldn't get hurt. And in fact, if I led the sin, led my peers, my 12-year-old peers into sin, then I couldn't be surprised by anything and left speechless and wounded. And if feelings ever did worm their way into my heart, I would sit in the bathroom, close the door, and just rake my arms with my nails until they bled. Just to feel something tangible, something other than the anguish of my self-loathing and pain and confusion. I often refer to my mental state during that time as being clogged and confused by a thick fog. There was no compass or direction, only partying and pain. This went on until one day I ran away from home for a couple days. And upon coming home, my mom decided that I was too out of control. So she admitted me to a rehab the summer before high school, where I stayed for three weeks and got sober. This three weeks definitely served to, to give me a little more clarity of mind and feeling. Um, but I still didn't recognize the abuse. I stayed sober all through high school, but I was basically a dry drunk. My other behaviors didn't stop. I was just still the cool girl who was basically partying, but dryly, um, and still totally empty inside. During the week, I went to AA meetings, and on the weekend, I hung out with my boyfriend, my alcoholic boyfriend, and his friends. So fast forward four more years, college rolled around, and I wanted some freedom and depth of experience. So without knowing, I was beginning my search for meaning. And now here I jumped to my parallel faith journey. 
My desire to fill the emptiness in my heart that the abuse had left led to my choice for the hippie Mecca that is UC Santa Cruz. <laughs> that is sarcastic. <laughs> you see, I chose Santa Cruz because I wanted to see if those hippies were onto something. I wanted to break on through to the other side. Jim Morrison, yes. And within a few weeks after arriving, I started smoking pot and drinking again. Much harder than before, of course, because now there's no parental supervision. And lo and behold, I spiraled back into depression. And six months in, I called my mom and told her I didn't believe in Jesus anymore. And I was on the fence about God in general. You see, I didn't know who he was. I had no connection with him. The notion of a Christian God was old news. Been there, done that. I had grown up going to Mass, and I prayed with my mom at night. The rote prayers, Our Father, Hail Mary, Glory be. But this Christian God was archaic and little. And he gave, some, he gave people like a Marxist-like opioid consolation. He couldn't possibly be that true higher being who encapsulated all the sublime magnanimity that I intuited the truth was and that I wanted to commune with. So I went on a search and I started reading people like Thich Nhat Hanh and learning to breathe right and doing Tai Chi and talking to psychology professors who did acid for 10 years. And I, but clearly nothing was compelling. Well, gratefully nothing was compelling enough, believe it or not. And I slipped into despair and I abandoned belief in God altogether. I dropped out of college in March and went home. And at this point, I did not know what to do or where to go. The only thing that I could assert that I knew that was certain in the world was natural beauty. It was real, tangible, pure, because it was untainted by man's evil choices, and it was beautiful. So I decided a first step to finding this truth of the universe would be to go to the most beautiful place I could imagine, which was the island of Kauai. I had been there many times before with my family, and I wanted to steep myself in the most beautiful place I could think of in hopes that something would happen. I didn't know what that would be, but I felt like I had to try something. I had to go to the only place that was certain for me and good. When I got there, things got better, but then they got worse because I was dazzled by the grandeur of what I was beholding with my eyes, but I soon realized it was all out there and I could touch it, but I couldn't commune with it in the way that my heart longed to. I couldn't become one with it. So it actually magnified my loneliness. And I thought, if not here, where? And one night I found myself completely stoned and sitting alone on South Shore, a beach in Poipu around 2 a.m. I had been there many times before, but this time I was by myself. And I was looking out on a scene that I had seen many times before, but tonight was perfect. It was a glorious starry night shooting stars going across because it was August and there's the annual meteor shower. There's a black rocky point jutting out into the water. There were perfect green curling waves that were glowing in the near full moon above. And I just, in my altered state, I uttered the words, thank you. And then I stopped. 
because who was I thanking? I had abandoned, he does this to me, I had abandoned belief in God. But since the words had fallen from my lips without forethought or analysis, I trusted these words to be pure. Something about me and my humanity recognized this as created, as creation. And I caught myself again, this sounded very Christian. Could I accept this? I romantically wanted the truth when I found it to be sublime. Could this be true, that this scene was created? And I kept pondering and reasoning, and then I re reasoned, with the help of his grace, that yes, in fact, it was so sublime that a huge, magnanimous creator God who created the universe and all of this grandeur that I see would create it for me as a gift. That irony of the magnanimity and yet the personal intimacy of, of that God was incredibly sublime to me in that moment. And I felt able to accept the belief in God again. Though not Jesus, he came later. Because of my mama, a faithful mom. She is, um, I, I credit my faith to her, to God and her. She prayed me and coerced me back into the Catholic Church. Chris always says this, he loves coerced religious experiences. He had one similar. Agreed, grace is real. You just bring him to the place where it is. So about six months after returning from Kauai, she booked me on a silent retreat to the Carmelites in Los Angeles. And I went and I was sitting outside during one of the talks, smoking a cigarette, and I saw Jesus there. And he was holding out his hand to me, inviting me to come home. But I didn't take his hand. I was reading this to my daughter, and she freaked out on me at this moment and said, what is wrong with you? <laughs> this, wounds are very powerful. You know, they dictate quite a bit. I couldn't break the walls of the sinful behavior that I had built around me to protect my heart. I would be unsafe and exposed. So I returned to my partying. And then a couple months later, she got a trip sponsored for me to World Youth Day here in Denver by a very small and poor apostolate. And I thought, I can't refuse. She tied my hands. I can't refuse this gift of these generous people. So I went by Greyhound across from LA to Denver. Horrific journey. But JP2, this archaic Roman man, or, or a man in a Roman costume, spoke, and my heart was pierced. And I found myself quietly weeping. I didn't want anyone to see because there's accountability there. And his words for me were love and truth and home. But I, it wasn't enough yet, I guess. Stubborn. I went back and went back to my sin. I didn't yet know Jesus and his love for me. I didn't know I would be okay. Finally, three months later, my mom wore me down again and paid for another weekend retreat in Orange County. So I drove up and the conference opened with a mass by a very charismatic and powerful priest who spoke a message of repentance and the urgency of it. Do it now, he urged. Don't wait, he is waiting for you. 
and just, you know, the mystery of grace in that moment, Jesus revealed himself to me. He loved me right where I was in the filth that coated me. And he loved me first and then called me to change. And finally, I saw a way home to him and I saw that he was safe and that he was enough. I went to confession for the first time in six years and received communion and I have not turned back. To whom else would I go? So on to Franciscan University of Steubenville. I wanted more of Jesus now. I wanted all of Jesus now. Two years later, I'm marrying the man that I had chosen and pursued the lioness, for his intense faith and powerful but very gentle leadership. Even as a freshman, he led the way in a very needed um, renewal on campus. And uh, I, of course, chose him for his sparkly blue eyes as well. Fast forward back nine years, or ahead again to nine years, the Courage to Heal book, Barnes & Noble, was I sexually abused by Jason at 11? Then again by an acquaintance at 13? And then again on a date at 14? And then again by my boyfriend at 18 while I slept? But see, none of those times were by strangers in a back alley with me kicking and screaming. So I picked up the book and I scoured it for a definition of sexual abuse. And what I read was sexual abuse is any, any non-consensual sexual activity. I couldn't believe it. I was a survivor. And there was incredible relief in this realization. As you can imagine, there was a reason for my feeling dirty and repulsed and frigid, and it wasn't my fault. I immediately found a counselor who specialized in sex abuse and began therapy despite the cost. But soon she began offering me help by way of telling me that Chris just needed to masturbate so you can have time to heal. One thing I have learned is that no healing is worth, nor does it demand the compromise of truth. Side note. So I had to bail her. Then I found a Protestant woman who, in the second session, had me doing an elaborate forgiveness prayer for all my perpetrators, which felt completely forced and false. So I left her too, and discouraged, I stopped therapy for a while. And I had another kid, because that's what you do. <laughs> we were now at five, and I was a haggard lunatic that Chris had to remind to shower, um, muscling my way through motherhood and through my marital duties with gritting teeth, waiting for it all to be over. During this time, Chris and I continued to fight a lot. He was always trying to prove to me that he was not my perpetrator and was understandably so frustrated that I continually responded like he was. And I was always wondering why can't I just process the truth that he is not my perpetrator but my beloved husband? It was like I kept slamming into a brick wall that I knew was there, but I couldn't find the gate for it and I couldn't figure it out. And it was so painful to be so competent in every other area of my life and such a dismal failure with my very own beloved in the way that arguably matters most or is at least at the top of the, the list of good Catholic wives, the traits of a good Catholic wife. 
The only time I could be, now hear me on this, gets a little complicated. The only time I could be sexually present was during phase two of my cycle. Okay, which if you're familiar with NFP, also called? No fun for Papa. No fun for Papa. It's the time when, with five small children, you might want to think about abstaining from sex, as phase two is when you ovulate and therefore conceive. But it's also the time when your libido is finally present, as God so perfectly planned it so that we could be fruitful. See, we good Catholic but sex-abused, formerly sex-abused wives fill a very unique and excruciatingly difficult niche. We're trying to be faithful to God so we don't practice birth control, and yet we keep having sex during phase two because we finally can. Then we conceive number four, five, six, eight, ten, twelfth child and lose our minds because we have to control everything because remember, we're sex abuse survivors who have to control everything. And then if you have sex during phase one, when you're allowed to, then you're re-traumatized. This cycle is excruciating. And I have seen women, friends of mine, go down in flames because of this exact scenario, sometimes leaving their husbands and their families, and all the while putting the blame on their husbands for being brutish and pushing sex and more children on them. I felt hopeless. Then I heard about a process called EMDR from my mother-in-law. Thank you, Mary. Her name is Mary. She told me about a procedure her therapist used to unlock her family trauma and work through it. Miraculously, I found a Catholic therapist who is EMDR certified. And in 2010, I began seeing her and a handful of months or so into it, we began EMDR. EMDR is a process that unlocks the traumatic memory, which is stored back here somewhere in your brain and brings it forward into the frontal lobe where you do all your processing. That way you actually can speak truth into it and it penetrates. And that traumatic memory itself gradually becomes desensitized and disempowered so you're no longer triggered by seemingly unrelated experiences and you no longer behave hysterical without knowing why the heck you're so over-emotional and feeling so attacked. This was incredible and it was freedom and it worked to heal most of my memories. And I'm not gonna lie, it is very often super painful and super exhausting, and I'm glad it's over for now, but it's super effective when it's done right, and I may be back someday. Um, doing months of EMDR was also a time when we started date night, which at first was just sushi and sake every Monday after therapy, but which has become even now, because we are very faithful to this day, to our weekly date night. It is now a very obvious but unspoken code for intimacy 99% of the time. Side note, please do date night. I cannot recommend it enough to bracket life's burdens and just enjoy each other over a glass of wine. Those will be there when you want to get back to them. But this relationship is important enough that, and you need to come together in, in whatever way you're capable of at the time. And I truly credit the strength of our marriage in large part to date nights. And now I can show up and actually enjoy union with my beloved. And it is something I never, 
ever thought possible 13 years ago. But the work wasn't done. And a handful of years ago, we took a trip back to Kauai for the first time in 24 years. However, one of my abusers lives there. And I came home and I slowly descended back into frigidity. And I tried to ignore it and deny it. But one day Chris sat me down and said, you have to stop pretending you're not tired. You're frigid. And it was as low a moment as ever before. I wanted to die. I, I kept ideating stepping in front of a bus and just not being a problem anymore. I, I didn't feel I could bear it, truly. I couldn't go back to where I had been. You see, I still have to fight the self-beliefs that I'm alone and that I have to do something to be loved. Abuse taught me that. I felt utterly hopeless, truly despairing, and I told Jesus he would have to do it for me. I could barely stand up, let alone fight this beast again. So I booked an appointment with my kid's therapist because I really trusted him and I begged him for some hope. I asked him if he had hope for me. And he said he absolutely did. And he said it with such certainty that I believed him. And I told him in a moment of grace that I would take his hope for me. It felt like this tangible thing that he was giving to me from himself. And I was parched and desperate and I claimed it for my own. And this time, he suggested attacking the beast from the spiritual side. And now, unlike before EMDR, I was ready for that. I could go at this at a spiritual angle. He recommended the book Unbound, in which with the help of someone who has done it before me, I would prayerfully renounce different demons and demonic self-beliefs that were likely plaguing me and had been for some time. So I met with some dear friends and I prayed. I renounced the spirit of fear, the spirit of abandonment, of self-protection, the belief that I'm dirty, that I'm at fault, and all the various lies that had attached themselves to me and were punking me around over the years. And after this day of prayer, it was a gradual relief that I felt. I continued to see the therapist develop more intimacy with Chris, not just sexual, and I learned again how to be freely united with my beloved. And thank you, Jesus, the relief and healing came much faster than the first time. Most of the psychological work had been done. I just needed to arrest that demonic piece and let Jesus' blood do the work. It was then that I learned about the necessity and joy of receiving that I had to be docile to the Holy Spirit, to Chris, who desired to pour love into my heart. The world will tell you the idea of man saving his damsel is condescending, that we women don't need men. I wish I could cuss right now so badly, but I won't. Don't do it, I won't, I won't. That the idea of masculinity is grotesque and inherently threatening. It's an absolute lie. I, I have adrenaline even as I think of it. I am so angry about it. Receiving Chris's love has served to heal my heart for it images God's love. I have grown to love men and what they have to give the world, their ability to be heroes, 
to receive me, warts and all, to be seen, known, loved, and received is transformative. Shouldn't be in the front row. <laughs> and I have learned to love me, genuinely. I truly love who God has made me to be and the path that he has led me down, and my heart especially. My heart has been broken, but in its healing, it has grown very big, and it's been made strong. In the pouring out of my love for my husband and my kids, I find an image of God's love, of Mary's love, and it's so beautiful because he is the source and his love is infinite. That's why I love Mary's Magnificat. I tattooed it on my arm. In realizing Elizabeth's recognition that she bore the Savior in her womb, she bursts forth with awe and gratitude at the vessel that she is. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For the Almighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Like light through glass, she sees the salvation of man, love himself flowing through her to the world. And I see a glimpse of that in my love for my family. It's so powerful and it's so beautiful. Women, I pray that you all come to know what a gift you are to the, your children, to your men, and to the world as a woman. Oh, I forgot to look at the exact quote, but Edith Stein said the world, maybe someone can help me, the world needs women not for what they can give, but for who they are, something to that effect. There is no heart like a woman's heart. And I urge you to have the courage, women, to go into battle against the beasts that want you to believe that you are forever tainted and that you have to do something to be lovable. Fight to see yourself through the lens of the one who fashioned you exactly as you are, with your strengths, with your weaknesses, chosen exactly for you, who is beautiful and you can handle it with his grace because he delights in you and he holds you in being every moment of every day you live, keeping your every breath moving in your lungs every second. He wills for you to be here, right where you are, and he has you in his hands. They're big, they're capable. And the best part is that he wants nothing from you but to receive his love so that you can pour it out into this hurting world. And men, I beg you to be patient with your wives. This is a long and rough road, but there is so much light at the end of the tunnel. Ask him. Be strong for them and show them a love that they can't live without. The end. <laughs> Not really. <laughs>